So we are in a series called The Culmination. I'm going to catch some of you up that have maybe you're just getting to the church, kind of figuring out, like, what is this about? We've been in Luke since 2015, so December of 2015. I mean, some of y'all weren't even born then. I'm kidding. You were. I'm just messing with you. 2015, that's a long time ago. We've not preached in Luke every Sunday since then, but this is like week 73 or 4, something like that, in this series. It's been a lot of weeks in Luke. Luke's a long book. But the last few chapters are the culmination of Jesus' time on earth. So we're kind of spending uh, the time before Easter, leading up to Easter, looking at the last four chapters of Luke, which is basically the last four days of Jesus' life on this planet, right, before he resurrected and went back to heaven. So we're just talking about the culmination. What does it look like? What, what does the end of the story look like for us? And so this morning we're going to be in um, Luke chapter 22, the end of 22 and the first half of 23. I'm going to give you some time to find that. And I just need to tell you as you're looking for that in your Bible that I have very little experience when it comes to being in court. Okay. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands how many here know what it's like to be in court. The only court that I really know a lot about, and it's bad, is I think it's traffic court. Is that where you go when you forget to renew your tag? So I've been there a few times, right? I'm bad about remembering to get my, am I the only one? Does anybody else struggle with, like, they send you the reminder and you're just like, put it away, and then you realize later when they pull you over, you're like, why are you pulling me over? I was going to speed limit. Your tag expired three years ago. Oh, that's why, right? It's never been that bad. But I, I've never been to court, like, where there's a judge, you know, like, robed, and, and like, there's a jury, and the gavel thing, like, all that stuff, like, I mean, I, I can struggle sometimes with anxiety. Like, just talking about that makes me get a little panicky. Like, that just freaks me out. I don't even know what it would be like to be called to the stand. I'd be like, whatever you say. <laughs> yes. You know, just, just the whole scene just really freaks me out. So about all I know about courts is every now and then I'm, I'm cool with, like, a law and order marathon. Right? Anybody feeling me on that? You like law and order? Like, I'll do that every now and then. But I don't know much about court. But today in this passage, Jesus is going to be put on trial. Three times. So I thought we, we kind of need to get in this, like, legal mindset. Are y'all cool with that? I've got some, I'm going to read some transcripts. Is that cool? Um, these are things that were actually said, literally said, in courts of law, and they were transcribed by those people that, like, do the typing, okay? Is that what it's called? Okay. Again, I don't know. So here we go. So here's, here's one. These are, act, this is real, y'all. I'm making sure you know this. I'm not making this up. People, people said this. And if you're a lawyer here, we love you. My goodness. All right, so here, a lawyer actually asked this question of a witness. How far apart were the vehicles at the time of the collision? Back and forth between a doctor and a witness. I love this. Doctor, from the lawyer. Doctor, before you performed the autopsy, did you check for a pulse? No. Did you check for blood pressure? No. Did you check for breathing? No. So then is it possible that the patient was alive when you began the, began the autopsy? No. How can you be so sure, doctor? Because his brain was sitting on my desk in a jar. But could the patient have still been alive nevertheless? Yes, it is possible that he could have been alive in practicing law. I love that. Love that. Lawyer to a witness. What was the first thing your husband said to you when he woke up that morning? He said, where am I, Kathy? And why did that upset you? Because my name is Susan. 
I don't know if you've ever been to court and tried to defend yourself. They give you that option, right? You can have, a, you can have an attorney. You can have one uh, like given to you, or you can represent yourself. This is somebody who is, who is representing themselves. Turns to a witness and says, did you get a good look at my face when I took your purse? That person was convicted. Um, some questions that lawyers have actually asked out loud. You were there until the time you left. Is that true? The youngest son, the 20-year-old, how old is he? So you were gone until you returned. Were you present in court this morning when you were sworn in? Pretty sure. My favorite, I love this. A lawyer asked a witness, have you lived in this town all your life? And the witness said, not yet. <laughs> wow, that's a tough crowd. It's kind of like being in court. All right, so. We're going to be in Luke chapter 22. Um, the end of 22 and the first part of chapter 23, here's what's going to happen. Jesus is going to be put on trial by three different groups of people. The first group is going to be religious leaders. That's what the Bible is going to say, that religious leaders got together and kind of put Jesus on trial. And then he's going to leave from the religious leaders. He's going to go to the second trial, and that's going to be in front of a man, a man named Pilate. And then he's going to leave that, and he's going to go to a third place, and that man's going to be Herod. So three different trials. And if you're anything like me, and I don't want to assume that you are, but if you read the Bible like me, sometimes I tend to read the Bible, and here's what I think. Those are some bad people. But I would never do that. Right? Do you ever do that? Like read about the bad stories and go, well, I wouldn't have done that if I was them. And so sometimes what happens is we read it and go, well, those religious leaders, they're, they're terrible people. So, of course, they're going to put Jesus on trial. And I, we know that Pilate and Herod, they're bad because I've seen Easter plays. Y'all seen Easter plays, right? They're not good people. So, of course, they're going to put Jesus on trial. And we kind of tend to read it like we're just browsing the newspaper instead of really thinking to ourselves, like, what's really happening? And, and have I ever done that? And so what I want to talk about this morning is not so much the people that were putting Jesus on trial, but can we get super real and talk about what they were putting Jesus on trial for? So I think there's three things that they put on trial, and I think we do it all the time, okay? I know you're confused. It'll be okay. It all makes sense in the end, I promise. So here's the first one. Let's start with this. Of the three groups that tried Jesus, this is the only time in, in the first part of the chapter, the end of chapter 20, 22, this is the only time that Jesus is going to talk about, like, religious stuff, okay? Here's what it says. At daybreak, verse 66, all the elders of the people assembled, including the leading priests and the teachers of religious law, Jesus was led before this high council. So this is a whole bunch of people that are religious leaders, okay? So this is going to be like a religious trial. And they said, tell us, are you the Messiah? And he replied, if I tell you, you won't believe me. And if I ask you a question, you won't answer. You ever had a conversation with a stubborn person? Like, I could talk to you till I'm blue in the face. You're not going to change your mind. That's what he's saying, okay? But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated in the place of power at God's right hand. So they all shouted, so you're claiming to be the son of God. And he replied, you say that I am. Why do we need other witnesses? They said, we ourselves have heard him say it. So what's happening in this setting is that Jesus is being tried by these men about being the Messiah. That's the specific thing that's going on. Messiah means he's the one who was to come. He's the person they've been talking about for years. All the Old Testament prophecies about a, a person coming that would save people from their sins were pointing to a man called the Messiah. You got that? So that's what's happening, and, and he's on trial. They're like, are you the Messiah? You know they don't really want him to be the Messiah, right? They have an agenda. 
And so he says to them two things that highlight to them that he knows, that they know, that he knows that they know, right? Like this is what's going on. Number one, he calls himself the son of man. And we just read that like, oh, son of man, son of God, son of whatever, you know, whatever. No, son of man was, it referred back to Daniel chapter 7. And son of man was a title that was only allowed to be used to refer to the Messiah. So when he said son of man, they were like, what? He really thinks he's the Messiah. And then he followed up and talked about he'd be seated at the place of power, like the right hand of God. And that refers to Psalm 110.1, which is also a, a, messiah, a messianic promise. It's like that's something that only the Messiah would do. So two times he's like, um, yeah, you're asking me if I think I'm the Messiah. Let me answer you like this. And that's why they started shouting, so you're claiming to be the son of God. Now here's the thing. If we just stop there, all of us are going to be like, well, we know that Jesus is the Son of God. Right? If you're here and you're saved, you believe that. If you're here and you're not saved, you're thinking about it because I just said it. But for the most part, we're like, yeah, he's, he's probably God. So we're not going to put Jesus on trial about being the Son of God. Here's what we put Jesus on trial about, the plan of God. They were putting him on trial about the plan of God. Because here's what religion wants. Religion wants its own plan. Religion wants to tell you what to do. It doesn't want to be told what to do, right? Super religious people, they're like, if you'll do these ten things, then you'll have access to God. But you better do all ten of them, and you better do them just right. But relationship with Jesus is God saying, y'all are never going to do all that stuff right. I'm going to take one step down and be with you so that we can have a relationship. That's the difference between Christianity and religion. And these religious men were putting the plan of God on trial. We want a different Messiah. We don't want a Messiah like you because you're not going to go take care of the bad people that we don't like. You're not going to beat those people up. So we want a different Messiah. We don't like the plan. Give us a new plan. We just don't say it like that. We say it like this. I want to go to that college. I want to have that job. I don't even like the person I'm married to. I don't like the plan. That's how we say it. And we put the plan of God on trial. Because I don't like the way it's working out in my life. What I want you to know today is, man, we can trust the plan of God. We don't have to call the shots. We can trust his plan. Let me give you three scriptures. You just jot these down. I think they'll be on the screen too. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. God said, remember the things that I've done in the past, for I alone am God. I'm God. There's none like me. Verse 10, only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Have you, have you ever read that before? Like God can tell us what's going to happen. He knows the future. We don't. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. Why can I trust the plan of God? Because he can see farther down the road than I can. Some of y'all are like, well, if I could have seen farther down the road, I wouldn't have taken that job because I would have known the boss was going to be a jerk, right? But it sounded so good in the interview, didn't it? And God can see farther than we can. Isaiah 55, 8, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. You know what that's, that's about, about perspective, right? Any of you guys like to fly, like in a plane? I don't mean like just like Drop me out. <laughs> I mean, like, okay, risk takers in the room. Has anybody here ever um, skydive, gone skydiving? Anybody? 
Okay, got it. So, like, I'm just thinking, like, the perspective down here on the ground is one thing, but from up top, like, I love to fly because I love to take off. You take off and you just get going higher and higher and things get smaller and smaller. And I'm just like, wow, this is cool until, like, I hear a noise and I'm like, oh, God, don't let us die, right? Perspective is everything, y'all. Not a trick question. Is this Bible bigger than that wall? Not a trick question. Don't, don't make it spiritual. Well, of course it is. It's God's word. No, the Bible is that, this book's smaller than that wall. Unless I do this, right? And now it's like, wow, that's a really big Bible. Perspective is everything. One more example just so you see this. I want you to get this. Take your small child with you. Like if you've got a child about this, this tall, take that child with you onto a really crowded elevator. They have a very different perspective than you do. Because their perspective is butts. And they start like fidgeting. They're like, pick me up. And you're like, stop whining. And they're like, pick me up, stop. And all they're saying is, it really smells bad down here. Pick me up, take me to oxygen. Let me get a good breath, right? Like, pick me up. Perspective is everything. And sometimes we argue with God about his plan because we have a very limited perspective. But the Bible says that his thoughts are not my thoughts. His ways are not my ways. He can actually see what's coming, and I cannot. My perspective is limited, but his perspective is like way up here, like I can see it all. We can trust a God like that. We can trust somebody who has a plan like that. Psalm 33, 11. But the Lord's plans stand firm forever. His intentions can never be shaken. We can trust his plan because his plans are firm. Listen, I love y'all, right, but I know this about us. I've been talking for about 10 minutes, and in the 10 minutes that I've been talking, you've changed your mind about what you want to eat for lunch three or four times. Unless you've already got something cooking at home, and you've already regretted what you chose to cook. Like, we can't even keep our plans about lunch, right? We'll be like, the, the only thing we know for sure is we ain't going to Chick-fil-A today, right? We know that. That's for sure. But everything else, we don't really know. And, and you'll change it again before you get in the car, and you'll probably start driving to one place and go to another. We can't even agree about whether or not Coke is better than Pepsi, although we all know Coke is. The point here is we make plans and we change them like that, and God said his plans never change. They're firm, y'all, and that's a good thing. We can trust that. They're putting the plan of God on trial as like, are you the Messiah? We hope not because we don't like you. We've accepted Jesus. If you're here and you love Jesus and you're following him, we've accepted him. We just put the plan of God on trial all the time. I want a better plan, God. You don't even know what you're doing, God. If you knew what you were doing, X, Y, and Z wouldn't happen this way. And we put his, we put his plan on trial all the time. So the first part of, verse, of chapter 23, the religious leaders took Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor. They began to state their case. This man has been leading our people astray by telling them not to pay their taxes to the Roman government and by claiming he's the Messiah, and they added something really important, a king. And why would they add that? Because Pilate doesn't give a flip about whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. What got his attention was Jesus claimed to be a king, and Pilate is also a king. We're not going to talk about this, but can I just point this out? The church 
back in the day, the religious leaders here, they went political to get something achieved. I mean, hello, North American church. That's all the church is doing right now. We're trying to go political to get something done. And God doesn't want us to go political. To get, and there's nothing wrong with politics. We should probably vote and all that stuff. We should know what's going on. But, like, our hope is not in politics. Our hope is in another king. And they changed their tactic to get the political people on their side. Hey, he says he's a king. He won't pay his taxes. And so they forget the religious side. They just went 100% political. And so what does Pilate say in verse 3? Are you the king of the Jews? What's happening right now is they are putting the authority of God on trial. He's putting the authority of God on trial. What he's saying is, wait, I'm sorry, time out. Did you say a king? You're a, you're, are you a king? And here's what he's saying is because if you're a king and I'm a king, then if you get the throne, I don't get the throne. We're going to have to fight over that because I want the throne. They're arguing over the authority of God. Man, we do the same thing all the time. Pilate's question is one that all of us have to eventually ask. We have to look at Jesus and we have to ask this question, is he the king of my life? Is he, does he have authority over me? Does he sit on the throne of my life? Let me give you a couple verses just to show you the authority that God has. Romans chapter 3 verse 4 says this, even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. As the scriptures say about him, you will be proved right in what you say and you'll win your case in court. If you have the NIV, it says, let God be true and everybody else be a liar. The point here is, I know we live in a culture where everybody wants to be right. And that's hard because there's no way we can all be right. I mean, there's state fans and everybody else, right? Right? So we couldn't even agree on that. Okay, I got you. We all want to be right, but the truth of the matter is there's, tr there's truth. And God says he is true. Let God be true and everybody else be a liar. God is the one that has the authority to be true. Psalm 119, 160. The very essence of your words is truth. All your just regulations will stand forever. John 17, 17. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Psalm 19, 9. Reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The laws of the Lord are true. Each one is fair. Listen, we wrestle sometimes with the authority of God, and we kind of put it on trial. If you've ever found yourself saying this, I don't care what the Bible says, then you are putting the authority of God on trial. Now, I know some of you, you're sitting here thinking, so you just told me that the Bible's true because you told me verses that the Bible says about the Bible being true, and I'm smart enough to know that that's called circular logic, and you can't do that. And all I'm going to tell you is this, okay, just check this out. I'm not going to even try to convince you that the Bible is true because the Bible says that the Bible is true, although I believe that the Bible is true. That's a lot of Bible and true right there, isn't it? Here's what I'm going to tell you. If you really believe in truth, if you really want truth, and you haven't ever read this book, you don't really want truth. Because this is the most unique book on the planet and if you really want truth, you're going to want to read everything there is to read. And I'm just saying, read it and see if it isn't true. Instead of wrestling with the authority of God, instead of putting him on 
trial. I believe this, the Bible is unique enough to demand investigation and inspired enough to bring transformation. So when you start reading it, just to, just to check it out, something will begin to change. Because this book is true. It's his word. So for Pilate, here's the thing. If Jesus is king, I can't be. And so the truth of the matter is the three costliest words you and I will ever say, Jesus is Lord. Because if he's Lord of my life, then I've got to step off the throne so he can get on it. And, man, he needs to be on that throne. One, because his plan is good, right? He knows more than we do. He's got a different perspective than we do. Two, his word is true. I mean, I love y'all. Y'all are the best people on the planet. But I know that you didn't get through the last week without lying at least one time. And I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. You didn't mean to. You didn't mean to. You said, I'll be home for dinner at this time, and you got home 30 minutes later. It's still a lie. You didn't mean to, but it doesn't work out. We, don't, we, don't, we can't even keep our own word sometimes, but God's word is true. The authority of God is something we can trust. One of the reasons why we struggle with the authority of God is, if we're honest, because we don't trust his power. And the reason is because authority is hard for us. A lot of us have had authority figures who have abused us. And I don't, I don't say that lightly. I mean, listen, pastors abuse power. Teachers abuse power. Students that have a lot of homework right now, can I get an amen? Hmm? Okay, I was just kidding. That's not really abuse. <laughs> Give them more homework, Lord. We just became the two un most unpopular people in this room right now. <laughs> we've had leaders. We've had bosses. We've had coaches. We've had people in our lives who had authority over us, and they abused it. And so, listen, I'm being honest. We come to God, and we say, I don't know if I can trust your authority, God. Because I don't know. I think you might abuse me the way other authority figures have abused me. And so we don't trust him. And so what we do is we start to protect ourselves. Like if I can't trust you to protect me from bad authority, then I'm going to be the one that protects myself from authority. And I'm not going to trust anybody else. And so we find ourselves kind of like Herod. And we put the goodness of God on trial. So the Bible says that when Pilate was finished with him, he sent him to Herod. Verse 8 says that Herod was delighted at the opportunity to see Jesus because he had heard about him and had been hoping for a long time to see him perform a miracle. I want to make sure that you hear this. Herod doesn't love Jesus, okay? But he's been excited about seeing Jesus. Can I just say that that might describe people in your life who don't love the Lord yet? There are some people in our lives who don't love the Lord, but they can't wait to see Jesus. They just want to hang out with Jesus. I've, I've heard about this guy. I want to ask him a couple questions. The Bible says that Herod actually said, I'm kind of hoping that you'll perform a sign for me. Like, oh, Jesus, Jesus, this will be fun. Make the spinach steak go now. No, now. I hate spinach. Make a steak. And Jesus wouldn't play along. And so Herod, who doesn't love Jesus, kind of gets disappointed by Jesus. And I'm just saying that that describes a lot of people that you work with that don't love Jesus. They want to love him. They're disappointed by him. And they're looking to you as a believer to encourage them to keep seeking Jesus. But look what the church did in verse 10. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the teachers of religious law stood there shouting their accusations. Instead of encouraging Herod, this is the one. They started screaming at Jesus about how he wasn't the one. Herod, you're right. You can't count on God. He's not good. 
And so what happens to Herod in verse 11? Then Herod and his soldiers began mocking and ridiculing Jesus. Do you see that the, the church putting the goodness of God on trial actually turned Herod's heart from wanting to know Jesus to wanting to kill him? Man, we have a lot of responsibility in our culture. We can do a lot in our culture to point people to Jesus. If we simply stop putting the goodness of God on trial. Verse 13, then Pilate called together the leading priests and other religious leaders along with the people, and he announced this verdict. You brought this man to me, accusing him of leading a revolt, and I have examined him thoroughly on this point in your presence, and I find him innocent. Herod came to the same conclusion and sent him back to us. Nothing this man has done calls for the death penalty. So I will have him flogged, and then I'll release him. That flogging was a major thing. It wasn't like slap him on the hand. Then a mighty roar rose from the crowd, and with one voice they shouted, Kill him and release Barabbas to us. Barabbas was in prison for taking part in an insurrection in Jerusalem against the government and for murder. He was not a good guy. Pilate argued with him because he wanted to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. So for the third time he demanded, Why? What crime has he committed? I found no reason to sentence him to death. I will have him flogged. And I will release him. But the mob shouted louder and louder, demanding that Jesus be crucified. And their voices prevailed. Before we finish this out, let me just tell you, I have heard so many messages that said the crowd was so fickle, right? So one Sunday, they welcome Jesus with palms. And the next Sunday, they're like, crucify. One week, they're for him. The next week, they're against him. But I need, you need to know this. The crowd's not even there, y'all. This isn't the same crowd that welcomed Jesus. That crowd wanted Jesus. These are religious leaders who were up early in the morning to make sure that they get this done before people even know what happened. This is the religious leaders crucifying Jesus. It's not a fickle crowd. It's leaders who should know better. And they're taking care of the Messiah before the Messiah can even do what he came to do in the people's minds. It's not a different crowd. It's not the same crowd. It's a different crowd. So Pilate sentenced Jesus to die as they demanded. And as they had requested, he released Barabbas, the man in prison for insurrection and murder. But he turned Jesus over to them to do as they wished. Here's what I want you to see. When things don't go like we plan, we tend to question the goodness of God, don't we? You know, God, if you'd have been good, if you were really a good God, my friend wouldn't have died. If you were a good God, there'd be no cancer. If you were a good God, there'd be no tsunamis. And listen, I'm not making a lot of those questions. Those are legitimate questions. I just think as the followers of Jesus, we should do what, what I've heard Bill Johnson say. We just need to anchor our souls in the goodness of God. Kind of like I want my kids to anchor their souls in the goodness of their dad. Like when I have to discipline my kids, how many of you know because you've done this as well, they don't really like me. If you took a survey the moment after I disciplined them and said, is your dad good? They'd be like, uh, are there negative numbers to this survey? Because no, he's not. But if you asked him, but forget just this moment, like, oh, is your dad good? Well, he's a good dad. I just don't like him right now. And I think sometimes that's how we need to see God. He's a good father. He's a good father. And sometimes things happen and we're just like, I don't understand. But I can trust you. I can trust you. And here's why we can trust him. Everything we just read, 
When we start saying, I don't know if I can see the goodness of God, we turn and see that Jesus, no one has ever been treated more unfairly than Jesus. Have you ever said to God, it's not fair? It's hard to say it's not fair to a man who died in the place of a murderer and had never done anything wrong, who was actually declared innocent and still killed. So God's like, hey, I get it, man. I've lived it. I know what not fair is, but I'm still good. I want you to see in this story that when men were doing their worst, God was giving his best. Romans 5.20 says that when sin increases, grace increases all the more. So here's your takeaway. When we put God on trial, we're found guilty and he's found good. I'm so glad. We're never going to put God on trial and find him guilty. We're the ones that are guilty. And us putting him on trial proves that. We're found guilty and he's found good. The plan of God, the authority of God, the goodness of God, they were all seen when the Son of God laid down his life for what Romans says are the enemies of God. And that's me and you. And look at the person next to you. I know they look good and they smell good. They got perfume and cologne on. But the Bible says that before Jesus, we were enemies of God. They would have killed Jesus. And they're looking at you like, mm-hmm, I know you'd have done it too. The Bible says we were his enemies. And so when we put him on trial, we're the ones that are found guilty. And when we're found guilty, guess what he does? Because he's such a good God. He says, you know what? I get it, like a lot of sin. But where sin increases, my grace increases all the more. And I love that about God. The point of the matter is we just have to learn how to start trusting his plan. We have to trust him and say, I, I know what you're doing is good. Well, one quick story. The band's going to come out, and, and then we'll wrap this thing up with a course. I was going through a tough time in my life, and I was reading in Jeremiah 29. And I know you all have heard this, this um, scripture. It says, uh, 29, 11, front of the plans I have for you are good. And I was kind of reading this story, and I was just in a dark season of my life. And, and I kind of read that verse, and I was like, like what like that doesn't make any sense like um god i don't you said if you've got a plan for me and like i don't understand the plan and god was like he didn't audibly say this but it was close i felt like he was saying read it again and so i was like for i know the plans i have for you says the lord it's good and he was like read it again for i know they said slower for i know the and he finally said like paul whose plan is it it's your plan, God. That's right. It's my plan, Paul. All you need to know is it's my plan and it's a good plan. A little bit later, I was, we were going somewhere with our kids. I told them we had some somewhere to take them like a surprise, and they were pumped about it. And so um, they start talking like kids do, like a mile a minute, asking all these questions, like, "It's going to be fun. Is it hot? Is it going to be outside? We're going to is it going to be candy? Will it be candy there?" And I was like, "Just, just get in the van, y'all." And we had a minivan. Anybody else got a minivan? I feel your pain, right? Like the worst day of my life was when we went and test drove minivans. The guy that was giving us the, the te- he's like, he just looked at me and he said, so wh- what do you think? You like it? And I said, no. I said, I mean, wh- why don't you like it? It's a minivan. I, I learned to love it. I did. But early on, that was kind of kind of a shock. And so we had this minivan and like child seats in the back, you know. And, and so I just said, let's just go get in the van, y'all. And so, like, they're trying to get ready, and, like, they're getting dressed, and they can't stop talking. They're just like, but, but like, is it going to be my favorite thing? Is it going to be outside? Are we going to climb trees? We're gonna just, get in the, just get in the van. 
just go get in the van. Okay. Start walking toward the door, like walking out the door, and they're like, but, but like, is it going to be ice cream? Ice cream? Oh, are we going to, is it, it's going to be like snow biz? So are we going to, so just, just get in the van, y'all. Before I change my mind, just get in the van. I mean, they're getting in the van, not even buckled in, and they're still just a mile a minute talking to each other, talking to me. I'm just like, guys, get in the van. Buckle up your seatbelts, y'all. I don't want to go to traffic court. Just get in the van. But, but is it going to be fun? It's, I've got, it's just, I'm a good father. I'm going to surprise you. Just buckle up back and out the driveway. They're still asking questions. I'm like, just, shh. Just, it's going to be good. And I think, guys, I think that's how God is with us, honestly. We ask him some, if you'll just answer all my questions, then I'll trust you. And he's just like, just get in the van. I told you it's a plan, and it's my plan, and it's a good plan. You'll be the head, not the tail. You've got a future and a hope. But, but what's it going to look like, God? I need to know all the details. I'm a type A, A, A person. And he's like, just get in the van. And let me take you where I want to take you. You can trust my plan. Hide yourself in me. Under the shelter of my wing, I've got a plan for you. You can trust it. Maybe today we choose to stop putting God on trial, and we choose today to start trusting God with the plan. We put him on trial for his plan. We put him on trial for his authority. We put him on trial for his goodness, and listen, he's good. He's good, y'all. I've seen some hard things, but I'm telling you that God is good in all of it, and he never changes. And maybe this morning that's all that you need is just to know that your father is still good. He's never changed. He still has a good plan for you. And he wants you to trust him with it.